our sermon passage today picks up again in the Gospel of John. We're in our sermon series in John, True and Better, and this week we'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is actually a passage we've looked at the last two weeks, Um, and the reason why we're uh, zeroing in, and this is our third week in the passage, is because I think that this passage can serve as a blueprint to show us, to get get us trained to, to, to know what to look for as we read through the Gospel of John. Because what I think that we see in this passage are some important, important things about who Jesus is and what he's doing. And so this week, we're going to focus in on uh, one of the aspects that I think this uh, passage reveals, the character of Jesus. But before we go on, let's read this. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. God's word, good, beautiful, and true. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage of Scripture. I thank you that in it we see a glimpse of who you are and what you're about through Jesus Christ. So I pray in these moments as we reflect on this passage that you would move by your Holy Spirit upon us, open the eyes of our heart, that we would uh, see more and more your beauty and your majesty, and you would form in us a love for you and a love for others that springs from such a vision of seeing you for who you truly are. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, You may or may not know the name Ravi Zacharias, but if you don't, Ravi Zacharias was this Christian teacher um, who died last year, Um, who, prior to his death, spent decades upon decades traveling the world, speaking to thousands upon thousands of people. And he was a teacher that focused specifically on the hardest questions of the Christian faith. He would speak to rooms full of skeptics and agnostics and atheists who would ask him the hardest questions, and he would give uh, thoughtful answers. He was a teacher that, that showed people in what he said, and what he did, that the Christian faith could be uh, not just uh, something that you feel. It was intellectually stimulating, that you could uh, dive into the things of God and your mind be uh, wrapped up and, and, and love it, that our intellects could be engaged at the deepest level by the things of God. Um, now, he died last year, and soon after he passed away, some things that he seemingly was able to keep under wraps while he was alive, alive began to come to light. And it was revealed that Ravi Zacharias, who had authority, who spoke with authority, who had power, you know, this great platform, 
it was revealed that he had used his power and authority for years to manipulate and to use women for his own selfish motives. Now, the, the details are, are tragic. That he used his position to, to, to manipulate people who trusted on him spiritually, manipulate them so he could use them himself. It was sadly revealed that Ravi Zacharias, though he had power and seemingly had authority, did not have the character that makes power and authority good news. And he became just another man in a long list of men who have used women for their own purposes. And in the aftermath of all this, it's led to uh, some hard questions, I think, for a lot of people. They begin to ask, well, Ravi Zacharias was this, uh, this great teacher, if he had power and authority, but he uh, used it for selfish reasons, can I trust the Jesus that he spoke about? Is Jesus a person who has power and authority, but some secret character that he's going to use me, that he doesn't have my uh, good in mind? Now, this passage that we're looking at this morning, I think, shows us a picture of the character of Jesus. And I think we learn in this passage that Jesus is not... Ravi Zacharias, that Jesus is not like this long list of people that use their power and authority for selfish reasons, that Jesus is in fact God come to earth with the greatest authority, with the greatest power, who uses that power and authority to bring us his grace, who uses that power and authority for our benefit. So what, what I want to focus in on this morning is the character of Jesus, the thing that makes his power and his authority good news for us. So how do we see the character of Jesus in this passage? Well, look at it. We, we see it in uh, his personal sacrifice, even here at the beginning of his ministry. Um, now, when we say personal sacrifice of Jesus, I think we tend to fast forward to the crucifixion that we see at the crucifixion that Jesus literally gives his life for the benefit of his people. He sacrifices himself for our sins, as we talked about in our um, assurance of pardon. He, he gives himself as a sacrifice of atonement for us. But before we get there, which is three years down the road from our passage this morning, we can see just the smallest amount of self-sacrifice, the beginning of the road that leads to his crucifixion. Now, where do we see this? You know, I mentioned his interaction with his mother here. And it might seem to us like he's being rude, but what he's doing is he's drawing a line and he's saying, this is kind of my public debut as God's Messiah. Up until this point, I've been a carpenter in my mama's household. <laughs> I've been under her authority. I've listened to what she said, and I've been a good son. But Jesus recognizes that it's time for him to step into the reality of what it means for him to be the Savior of God's people. And what that means here in this passage uh, isn't crucifixion, but it's him um, voluntarily uh, turning aside from a life that seems to be open to everyone else. Before we see him literally lose his life on a cross, he loses here in this passage um, the quiet of family in a small town. Jesus is from a small town. He surely had a close-knit family and close-knit friends. Um, and they didn't have the American dream, this idea of a successful career and, you know, a nice house and a good family back then. But that was something that he uh, voluntarily did not pursue. 
Think about it. Jesus was single his whole life. Jesus denied to himself uh, the, the fulfillment of a romantic relationship and all the friendship that comes along with that. That was denied to him. He remained single because of his calling as God's Messiah. Jesus was, uh, for the last three years of his life, leading up to his crucifixion. During his public ministry, he was homeless. He didn't have a home base he came to home to at night. He didn't have a place. He even said it. I don't have a place to rest my head. Um, he lived on the generosity of strangers often. Um, Jesus was single. Jesus was homeless. Um, and he, fa- he faced profound loneliness. If you read through the Gospels, not just John, but also Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see so many instances of what can only be described as the loneliness of Jesus. As he sees the world that he has created um, marred by sin. As he sees the things that people uh, are enslaved by and, are, and struggle under. As he sees the sins of people against others and sins of rebellion against God. Um, what we see here in this passage is Jesus voluntarily turning away, in a sense, from what could have been his and sacrificing family, sacrificing a different uh, path in life for the benefit of us. Now, we know where that goes, to the cross, to the resurrection. But here is the very first step of him leaning into that, the very first step of him doing that. This is Jesus' character on display. Um, that when the option is before him to step into uh, maybe not even just selfishness, to step into what everybody else would want in this world, he denies it. Why? Because of us. Because of our good. This is his selfless character on display. And this isn't just uh, for a moment where he decides to be uncomfortable for a moment. This isn't just a, a few a few days service trip. You know, sometimes we can decide that we're going to do something good and selfless for people. But it's rarely that we step into something that means a change of our uh, the trajectory of our whole lives. It might mean for us we spend an afternoon, you know, picking up garbage on a roadside. It might mean for us that we volunteer to be a mentor here or there, or we, or we do something nice for a neighbor. For Jesus, this wasn't just a moment. This is where Jesus lived. Think about it. The creator of all things had his choice of where he could have been born, where he could live, what he could do. And what Jesus chose was to step into what we would tend to call the most shameful and ugly parts of the world. Jesus pursues people who are worn down by disease. Notice that as we read through the Gospel of John in the coming months. Jesus pursues people who are on the fringes, who are cast aside. He goes after them, and he steps into their pain. And we see this in the healings in the Gospel. We see him go to those who are disregarded and used by others, which we'll see in chapter 4 when he engages the, the Samaritan woman at the well, she is a person who had been uh, used by people in her life, who had been forgotten and set aside, who was profoundly lonely. God of all the universe pursues her and in an afternoon goes to where she is. This is where what Jesus chose. This is where he cast his lot in this world. This is his selfless character on display. 
God coming into our world as one of us did not shy away from the very, what we would call the worst of our places, but he entered into them and he took them onto himself. And he did this, he did this so that we would not be lost in the chaos of our world. He walked into the disease-ridden places of his world so that he could tell them that your uh, sickness is not the final word. Your sickness is not the final word. He walked to the Samaritan woman to tell her that the way people have used you and your loneliness is not the final word about you. And even today, by His Holy Spirit, He is with us in the darkest, in the most difficult places of our lives, assuring us by His character that they're not the final word about us either. Whether we have sinned greatly or whether we've been sinned against greatly, or whether we find ourselves in a world of inequities where up seems down and down seems up. It's not the final word about us. And so, his loss of family is our gain. Think about it. He turns away from the possibilities of a future family. Why? Because he makes a way for us to be daughters and sons of God. And Scripture talks about us being uh, joint heirs and, and with Jesus, that he is in a sense, our older brother. And we're received into not uh, not just a, a family in a legal sense. Think about this. The family of God is a family of joy. It's a family of delight. Jesus talks about this later on. The Father delights in the Son, Jesus. And Jesus delights in the Father. And what happens when we're adopted as daughters and sons? We're invited into this joy. And this joy becomes the marker of who we are. This becomes the final word about us. The profound joy uh, that God has himself given to us as gift. In a sense, God's grace becomes our last name. It becomes the defining characteristic about who we are for now and forevermore. And so this is the character of Jesus on display. How else do we see the character of Jesus in this passage? Well, we see it in the nature of water turning to wine. The wine has run out at this celebration of the wedding, and this isn't just a social embarrassment. As I talked about a few weeks ago, um, there's actually legal liability that the couple could have had that they didn't provide enough <laughs> for all the wedding uh, guests who had come to celebrate with them. They could be sued in court for not uh, adequately providing. Um, and what we see is Jesus here provides for this young couple abundantly. He saves them from social shame. He, sa- he saves them from, from legal liability. And he gives them an incredible gift that they could use, that they could sell, that they could trade. Um, it's an incredible display of, of graciousness. But that's not all. Consider this, that Jesus doesn't just turn any water into wine. It's not just water that's laying about. John takes a moment to point out what this water is. It's in stone jars that are set aside for ceremonial washing um, for for, uh, Jewish religious reasons. Now, this was an incredibly common thing in the Jewish world at the time, but it was more than just water in a sink that we would use to wash hands in in our day. The ceremonial religious world of the first century Jewish person was an elaborate one. And it centered in on the temple with all its sacrifices, with the gifts that they would bring, the big uh, festivals that they would have, Pentecost, Tabernacles, Passover, 
the Day of Atonement, centered in on the tabard on the temple, but it had all of these ordinary, regular, uh, everyday things too, like the washings that is talking about here. They would wash before every meal, and not just for uh, reasons of needing to wash hands because they were dirty. Um, this whole picture of ceremonial cleansing was one that God had given to his people um, to communicate a central truth, that God was coming to dwell with his people. And because he is holy and they are not, because he is unstained by sin but they are stained by sin, they needed cleansing. They needed forgiveness. And the whole deal was this constant reminder that things were not the way they're supposed to be. That the way sin uh, mars and stains our world is not the way things are supposed to be, that, but that God was providing a way to make things right. The entire sacrificial system was, was a way of grace. And God was telling his people, yes, this is an elaborate system of sacrifices. This is an elaborate system of washing. But what I'm doing is I'm making a way for me to dwell with you. But here's the thing. That whole system was temporary, and it was meant to be temporary. It was like a big object lesson that was teaching God's people about this great need for cleansing. It was training, it was giving them muscle memory so they would uh, begin to have a longing for the day when God would come and dwell with his people. When the, when the day when they wouldn't need to do washings every day. When God when all those washings, the washing that all those washings was pointing toward would happen and they would be truly and finally cleansed by God. It was all a, uh, all the ceremonies were a temporary sign pointing forward. And so these stone jars there at the wedding, that's what they were. They were a sign in the corner over there at the front door uh, telling people, God is coming to dwell with us and we need to be cleansed, but he's going to do it. But what had happened in the history of the Jewish nation, and this often happens all throughout church history as well, what had happened is people had forgot, they had lost the central meaning. They had lost that idea that God was coming to dwell with them and that God was going to cleanse them and that all of this pointed forward to God acting in the future. They had forgotten that, and they had begun to treat these temporary things as a permanent, never-ending thing. And, de and detached from the central promise of God's grace, these ceremonial things, that became a burden. They became a burden, and people began to look to them to deliver things they couldn't deliver. Detached from the center of understanding what God was up to, they became a burden. So what Jesus does here is this. He takes this water, which for so many people had become a burden that can't really cleanse. It had become a rote, almost annoying thing. They had to wash every time and follow this procedure every time. He takes this water of cleansing and he turns it into what? A wine of feasting. And so he points back, he's pointing them back to the true meaning of what it was. That this cleansing, this cleansing that was built into the ceremonial system of the temple always pointed forward to the wine of feasting. Because why? It was always pointing forward to what? When the God of joy would come to bring his joy into their midst and it would become their joy. 
as scripture talks about, as the promise of the Old Testament runs through, I will be your God and you will be my people. God coming to dwell with his people. Well, it's happening in Jesus Christ. And it's a sign for us as readers, as it was a sign for the disciples there who saw this with their eyes of what Jesus was doing. He was coming and he was coming into the, the burden of their religion, of what it had become with their misunderstanding. And he was bringing the wine of feasting. He was bringing God's joy to make it their joy. This, the torn, this is the way that the turning the water and the wine uh, shows us the character of Jesus. He's a Savior who invites us into his joy so it will become our joy. He brings us into the fulfillment of God's promise to dwell with his people, to bring us into the fullness of what it means to be reconciled in relationship with him. You know, I suppose that Jesus could just display power, just great strength, and he could display his authority, his right to say what he has to say, and just demand that we follow him, right? Jesus could have just showed up in the first century and said, follow me, I'm God. Follow me, listen to me. I have the right to say this, and I have the power to squash you, so you better listen to me. And he would have been, I guess, in a sense, within his rights to do that, right? He was God. But his disciples then and now, we would have only followed him out of a sense of duty. We would have followed him only out of fear. We would have only believed that he had authority and power, but we wouldn't have believed really that that authority and that power is good news for us. So in Jesus showing us his character, not just in this scene, but in all the scenes that come after in his life that are recorded for us in the Gospels, that we show, he shows us the character so that we don't have to shy away from his power and authority. That in a world where, where, as we talked about at the beginning, power and authority is often bad news, that with God coming into our world in Jesus Christ, power and authority is profound good news. Because Jesus is not here to squash us. He's not here to demand from us. He is here to sacrifice himself for us, to invite us into his joy and so for us, obedience is no longer a scary thing. We come to God and we can obey, not because we're afraid he's going to turn us away, not because we're afraid of his power and authority, but because we've seen he is a God who uses his power and authority for the benefit of his people. We have seen his gracious character at work in Jesus Christ. And so we come to him because we know, we know what he will do with what we entrust to him. We can entrust our hearts to him. Because we know he won't, <laughs> he won't smash them, right? We can be honest with him as we talk about in our confession of sin and assurance of pardon. Because we know we won't be turned away. Because he has shown us in scripture, he has shown us in our own lived experience time and time again that he is our savior that pursues us in grace. And even though he has all power and all authority, that power and authority is profound good news for us because he is the God who pursues us in love, and that is his character. So the calling for us in response to a passage like this is not just to be wowed that God is strong. We should be. We should say Jesus is incredibly powerful. Look, he turned water into wine. He didn't even have to get up from the table. He just did it. It's not just for us to be wowed at his authority. Wow, he has the right. To, he can really, you know, say it and mean it, and he has the right to say it. No, we see this passage and we see what our God is like 
We see his character. And so the invitation for us this morning or whenever we're listening or listening to this, to see the character of Jesus on display and let's respond in faith. He can be entrusted with our hearts. He can be entrusted with who we are. Not just because he's powerful, not just because he has the right to say something, but because he is profoundly 